I want to start this morning by doing an exercise. Um, don't worry, it's not physical. We're not going to be doing any jumping jacks because, as you can tell, Thanksgiving hit me pretty rough, and we're not out of holidays yet because we have Christmas coming soon, right? The, the, the physical exercise comes in January. But this morning, I want us to do this mental exercise. I want you to try, as hard as it might be, to remember what it was like being 15 years old. I remember when I was 15, I was so excited. I actually bought my first car when I was 15 because I wanted it the day I could drive. Then I found out I couldn't get my license until I was 17 because there was, there was some weird stuff because I wasn't actually officially adopted by my 16th birthday. Or it was a couple days before my 16th birthday, but there's paperwork that I had to do. And if you aren't, as a foster kid in the state of Ohio, you can't have your license until you're 18 unless you're adopted out of the system. It's weird. And I didn't know any of that had happened until I was an adult. And I was like, why, didn't, why was I in trouble and couldn't get my license until I was 17? Um, but, so I've had, I had a car. I, and it was, I loved it. It was a 1985 Ford Mustang. It was cool. Fox bodies rock. They're awesome. I love them. Uh, but it's an awkward age, right? When you're 15, it is an awkward age. You're, not, you're no longer a child, uh, but you're not an adult. It's this weird in-between. Hormones are doing all sorts of weird things. Peer pressure is extremely important. Um, And you're testing the waters of life. You're you're doing so much exploration and experimentation. You're doing all this stuff. You're trying to be independent. It's a a weird time. Do we remember 15 yet? Have I, have I, we got there? Have I placed you in that mindset yet? So while we are there, scholars tell us that this was around about the age that Mary was when she found out that she was to be with child, not just any child, the Messiah. When that angel came, visits her, uh, and told her that she was to be overcome by the Spirit and become pregnant. In all likelihood, based on people smarter than me with the genealogical record and numbers and timelines that number people, uh, she's between the ages of 13 and 16. If you were, at 15, given news, okay, guys, just pretend it's your girlfriend, all right? If you were given that news, how would you respond? How would you respond? Now, I don't want you to, to think backwards in time. I don't want you to think as we do now, because when we read Scripture, we see the ending, right? We know the results, so it skews how we would think of ourselves in that situation. But act like you don't know about Jesus. You don't know about what would come? Like you're, you are Mary, and you have been told that you were to be a child, that the promise that God had placed upon um, all the way back from Eve to Abraham uh, through David is to come to fruition by you. How would you respond? I'm sure most of you would probably have a pretty intense conversation with your parents, right? Oh, be a crazy conversation. Uh, some people might even get upset, and they would withdraw from those closest to them. I mean, if your daughter came to you and told you, guess what, I'm pregnant, and guess who the dad is? Well, how would you respond? Uh, and, and no, I didn't. I, I, I'm still a virgin. I didn't do that, right? It, this is the Messiah. Um, most of us would, would totally write this off. You want to know how I know? Because there's a lot of claims that even the Bible makes about miracles that happen that we don't fully rationalize within our minds. We, we try to explain it away. And it, heaven forbid that somebody gets miraculously healed in this modern age because then it gets instantly thrown away 
as, as explained, is natural. But we don't need to go through a history of the mid-1800s and rationalism has invaded theology, right? We don't, we, that's not what this is for. But what I want us to understand is that what was taking place right now in this story is, is taking place in the, in the heart and in the mind and in the body of a teenage girl. A young teenage girl. How would we deal with this sort of news? Thankfully, praise God that he already delivered on his promise and we have a Messiah and we won't have to worry about experiencing this. We live post-Jesus. Not, not that Jesus is gone, but you get what I'm saying, right? We, we live post-crucifixion. We, we, we live in victory. We live in a spirit of an understanding that, you know what, Christ has already done this thing. Therefore, we don't have to bring an animal sacrifice and do all this crazy ritualistic stuff that they had to do. We have that debt paid for us. This morning, I want us to look at how Mary responded in this situation. There was a famous TikTok, and if you, if you guys don't know about TikTok, I highly advise you, do not get on TikTok. It's a cesspool. Um, but there was this, this viral TikTok going around, and, and it was, it was of course, everything has to be brought, everything in history has to be brought into accordance with our understanding current, right? So heaven forbid bad things happened 2 million years ago, 2,000 years ago, because ooh, why would they do that? Don't they know that that's bad? Like, well, they had a completely different rational for life back then, right? So this woman was trying to say that God and his patriarchal abuse was abusing Mary by forcing her to have his child. Sounds like some complaint from the left these days, doesn't it? Sounds like something that would come out of the, the, the wickedness, the wicked hearts of the world right now, right? It doesn't sound like something that would come from the reality of somebody who was to read the Scripture. Because I want to introduce you to a section of Scripture in Luke uh, 1 where we see how Mary responded. She wasn't a Me Too candidate. She wasn't in that camp. She didn't feel as if she was violated. Verse 46, Luke 1 says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Doesn't sound somebody who was uh, taken advantage of, right? 48, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, and for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled with the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as, his, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever." Doesn't sound like somebody he was being taken advantage of. See, if most of us have a, 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 in your Bibles, have a title over that section, what does it say? It says, it's either Mary's Hosanna, right? Or or Mary's Song of Praise. Or uh, there's, if you have an older, like a King James, it might have the uh, Magnificant, which is uh, a Latin term because 
It's old stuff, right? King Jamesers. Um, but the, it's to magnify. She is magnifying what God is doing. Now, I, I, I don't know if I'm confused or not, but I've never heard anyone be raped, then turn around and magnify their rapist. Never, if, if there's a scenario, please let me know, because that's not what's taking place here. That's not what's happening here. What we find is we are seeing Mary is expressing praise over what God is about to deliver through her. And, and we see the characteristics of this, this person. And so I've titled this, this message this morning, because we're looking at the gifts of Christmas. Last week we looked at the, the courage of Joseph, right? As the husband-to-be, the betrothed, who had to protect this woman who, by all intents and purposes, had been unfaithful to him. And under the law, she, he could have separated. And, but he chose in his moral courage to protect her to do what God had called him to do. And so today we're looking at Mary's hope, the hope that she has in, in that she is being the one who is carrying the, the fulfillment of the, the prophecy. And we see this humble spirit, this praise spirit, this, this mindset that's so beautiful. And I don't want us to miss that. I don't want us to, to just see Mary as this teenage girl. I want, to see this, I want us to see Mary as this woman of praise, from humble origin and of a humble spirit coming before a holy, righteous God and pouring herself out in thanksgiving. The Magnificat. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful section of Scripture. And so I'm going to highlight three characteristics. The first one is her Hosanna. Mary's response is a song of praise to God. It's a verbal offering from her heart, though through her words, to a holy God. It, 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 her heart wells up, her words come out, and it is a praise to God, a holy God. And, and look at those scripture, that verses again. Notice where the focus lies. The focus isn't on Mary. We have a problem with modern worship music is that it is self-focused. It's all about what God has done for me. It's all about what I can do for him. It's, it's self-focused. But what we see here is Mary is not focusing on her. Everything she's singing that she's praising is about God. It's about God and his mercy and his justice and his righteousness and his promises. It's all about him. The focus of the virgin birth is not on Mary, but on the power of God to deliver on his promises. See, this woman with this viral TikTok, if she were to only open up, crack open a Bible, there's no excuse. The Bible says in Romans that, that the law has been written on our hearts, therefore we are without excuse, okay? But beyond that, there is a Bible in every single Walmart. There is a Bible in every single hotel room, thanks to the Gideons. There is a Bible in every grandmother's dusty old shelf in their home, right? We have Bibles coming out of our ears in America, so she is without excuse. All she has to do is crack that dust, dust open, crack that spine, and read in Luke 1, and we see exactly what has taken place. Nothing against anybody's will, but because of a, a perfect, humble heart, we find Mary. If you're to take out a magnifying glass and examine this focal verse, this, this section of Scripture, we'd see nothing less than a song of praise. We would see adoration, we'd see exaltation, and pure praise to the Father in heaven. This is truly a song of worship. The people worship differently in the Bible. It wasn't about saying the right hook, getting the right emotional goosebump feeling. It was about one spirit that cannot contain the essence and the joy 
and the mercy and the grace of God. Therefore, it pours out. Praise is a verbal offering to God from your heart. When we offer a portion, when we give an offering, it's, we give an offering out of what God has given us, right? We, praise is God has given us that, that, that thing in our heart, that spirit, that worship, and, and it comes out. I had a conversation with you uh, about a month or so ago, and I've talked about this several times since then because it's just like my mind has shifted with worship music. Uh, too often, okay, so I was, I was perusing YouTube, and now YouTube has become like Facebook and Instagram where people can post things, and it's not necessarily videos. And, and I saw someone post something about a Hillsong song, and it was like, I hope that this is your weapon. And I'm like, listen here, worship music is not your weapon. And I went round and round and round and round. I said, the word of God is your weapon. When you, are, when, you, when you are taking a sword, I'm a medieval guy. I love the history. I love swords. I love all that, right? What happens if you take two swords and you take a sword and you clang it against a metal armor or you hit it? What's it do? It rings so loud, right? It is obnoxiously loud. I love it. It's a beautiful sound. Not that they're fighting, but I just love, I'm a dude, right? Uh, if you were to take a gun, right, and you load it up, you, 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 you sight it in, you pull that trigger, what happens? The gunshot. Is, is that gunshot dangerous? The round leaving. That gunshot signifies that danger is happening. Our worship is the sound of us utilizing the word of God. Right? When we are utilizing the weapon, it is going to make a loud, obnoxious sound to the world. That is our praise. That is that verbal offering. That's what we're talking about here. When we are praising, when we are, when we are doing that thing, we are, we are doing that because we are speaking God's word over our lives. We are reading his word. We are studying his word. We are speaking. We are preaching. We're reaching the lost, doing what we're called to do. And as we're doing that, we can't help but to sing and magnify the Lord. Now, here's a, here's a little case study for you. If you can serve God and not sing praises, guess what? You're not serving God for God. You're serving God for yourself. Because when you're truly serving God, oh my goodness, the joy, the hope, the, the beauty that's there, you can't help but to brag about it. You can't help but to talk about God. You can't help but to sing about it. You can't help but to praise. It's a beautiful thing. Praise is a verbal offering because God has placed something in you and you can't help but to get, get it out. I recently read... Uh, I've been doing a lot of reading recently, and it's, I think it's driving Candle and crazy, but don't tell her I'm, I'm, I'm aware of that. I'm just going to keep doing it until she tells me not to. Um, I, I love to read. I was recently reading something. I can't remember what it was. It was an article. It was a blog post. and They were, they were talking about this is over the Thanksgiving the time period, and, and they said if, only, if the only thing that God had ever done in our lives is to save us from an eternity in hell, then that is more than enough that we should praise God from the rising of the sun through the dark of the night. Because here's the kicker. We are, to, we are going to suffer. We are going to get sick. We are going to break a bone. We are going to experience hardships. We are going to lose our jobs. We're going to miss out on paychecks. Things are going to happen because guess what? This world is broken and we live in a broken world. But that does not diminish one iota of what God has done through the person of Christ, right? So if the only thing that you can be happy or thankful for is that God has saved you out of the pit of despair, out of the darkness and from the pits of hell, then amen. We have more than enough. 
When we look at Mary, she wasn't wealthy. Do you know historically what people did back then for entertainment? Not a whole lot. They were like having conversation while they're stomping on the, the threshing the wheat, right? While they're doing the chores and they're doing the work, the, the very laborious, every day-to-day stuff. To them weren't chores, that was life. And instead of shaking her fist at God, like, God, I'm about to bring the king of kings in the world. Why couldn't you have set me up in a palace? She's not focused on her. She's focused on God. It's beautiful. Praise God. He's given us more than we can be thankful for. He's given us taste so we can taste their favorite food. He's given us smell so we can enjoy flowers and baking bread. Praise God. He's given us humor so we can laugh together. He's given us all these things. On one occasion, an orchestra presented Handel's Masada. You guys know this song? So beautifully that the applause was so thunderous and everyone turned toward the composer as how, how what a wonderful job he had done. But Handel stood up with his finger, didn't say a word, silently pointed to God, indicating that glory should be given to God rather than to himself. This is exactly what we see Mary doing in this scenario. Now, some people have taken Mary an elevator to her to a station that she doesn't deserve. But when we look at Mary herself, she doesn't elevate herself. She elevates the name of God. She elevates the person of God, her, her salvation. She elevates her Lord. She's saying, don't praise me, but magnify the Lord who is my Savior. I love this story. And then we see three key elements of her, of her humility as we come in here, right? We see when we're reading this, she realizes these three big things, right? She's not in charge. And we must realize that we are not in charge. No matter how hard we want to be uh, the Davids to our story, Jesus is the David to your story. He is the hero. We are the background characters that don't get screen credits in the end, Okay. Realize that you're not in charge. Matthew 6, 27, for which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? There are some things that you can change, yes? There are things that you yourself can change. Then there are many things that you can't change, and what you can't change, you must put in God's hands. They're in his hands already, but you must understand and submit to his authority in those things. The second thing here uh, is to accept your position as a servant. Matthew 23, 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. These are Jesus' words. The disciples are arguing who's better, who will sit at the right hand. He says, the greatest among you will be your servant. And the third thing, submitting yourself to God. James 4, 6 through 7 says, But he gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submitting yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Humility. When we see the humble spirit of Mary in this, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. See, this is, a, this is that gray, that, that paradigm that we live. We live in a time period where the world will tell, especially this, this modern uh, feminist movement, wants to say, you're enough, you're perfect, you're great just the way that you are, blah, 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 blah. And all these pleasantries, but at the end of the day, you're still left with this huge void, this huge uh, 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 like darkness, this depression, and all this other stuff, because guess what? You're not enough. 
You never will be. You can never be. But praise be to God who sent his son, who is more than enough to take my shortcomings and reconcile me into himself. See, Mary is not thinking less of herself. She knows exactly who she is. Created, knit together in her mother's womb, beautiful, sought after. Jesus sought out. Not for her, for him. She knew who she was. but cared about God more, cared about Christ more, her, 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 the promise that was coming up through her, her womb more. Not for her glory, but for God's. Not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Hard thing to do, isn't it? Hard thing to do these days. Mary knew that she would now live her whole life under a cloud of suspicion from her family, and her neighbors, and embedded in her decision to be fully submissive to God was this willingness to suffer possible ridicule, loneliness, and contempt. God chose her, and she submitted to his will. How many times have you said to yourself, God, I would do anything for you? And then I can almost feel like God's, okay, this is in my head, okay? This isn't how God is. This is how Tony is in his head. Like, God's like, oh, Really? How do you like Uganda? You know, like, God, I would do anything for you. Okay, how about South Africa? Okay, God, I would do anything for you. What about Iraq? What about South Korea? What about North Korea? What about China? What if God calls you into your workplace and tells you to, hey, this person needs to know the gospel? And you're like, oh, I want them to think I'm cool, so I can't say nothing. I can't be offensive. I might lose my job. Mary knows full well that people are going to look at her and question her motives and her intentions and what in the world is going on. And that is the furthest thing from her mind. Want to know how I know? Like, that's not explicitly written in the Word of God, but you want to know how I know? Because she was a human being. Fears, sorrow, joy, happiness, all those emotions, we're not unique to those. She accepts God's will. And in Luke one thirty eight, a little bit before where we're reading, she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She is giving permission as if she needed to in the first place, but she still is. Let it be to me as you say. Okay, so that she was, she was in cahoots there, lady on TikTok. There was no evidence of Mary thinking that she was any different than anyone else. In fact, she speaks of being a servant of the Lord and, and of how she lives in a lowly state. She realizes that among all women, she was fortunate to be the one to bear the Christ child, not for herself, but for the world. We live in a jealous state of mind. We want to be the elevated one. We want to be the one that gets the praise and the glory. 
we're, we are the saviors in our stories, right? I, I played video games for many, many years, and if I had time and not five children, I probably still would now. Um, but one of the, the aspects that was alluring to me of these role-playing games was that I was the hero of the story. I would brandish my sword and my shield. I would get armor, and I would take out the enemy. I would do the bad guy stuff, and I would come back to the village, and they would award me with gold and cakes and all these other things, right? That's, that's, that is deeply embedded in our, in our spirit, right? We, we want to be the hero. We want that. But what we see here is that God actually wants the opposite from us. He wants us to humble ourselves to be the servant, serving the hero, serving the one who is to do the thing that we can't do to begin with. It's taught throughout Scripture that God is no respecter of a person's position. Do you think that he, um, when God's at, at the judgment seat of Christ, when, when they're there, do you think that he's going to look at people who are rich more different than those who aren't rich? Is he going to uh, uh, be a res- James tells us he's not a respecter of the, the people because of their wealth. Uh, do you think when kings and presidents are standing before the throne of God, do you think he's going to be like, well... I, I placed you into authority because of Romans 13, and the people had to trust you. Do you think that's how that's going to play out? I can guarantee you it's not. Because the Bible also tells us that everyone will stand, not stand, will kneel before him and declare him as Lord. God is not a respecter of position. He looks on the humble and the meek and, and smiles with pleasure. If Mary, in Mary, he found a humble vessel that he could use for his glory. It is so wonderful that God can take nobody and can make somebody out of them. I, I love the Old Testament. I, I absolutely, I'm a history guy, but I, I, don't, I do not think we can fully appreciate the, the beauty that is the New Testament without understanding the character of God through the Old Testament. I, it's not that I don't think. I know that you can't. Okay, you, you can't. It doesn't make sense. But when we see God moving throughout the Old Testament, he is every single time that the nation of Israel rears its ugly, sinful head and defies God, what happens? God raises up somebody who is a nobody and uses them to beat the nation of Israel back into submission. I love it. It's a beautiful thing. God uses the, the, what we would assume to be the, the, the least likely candidate so that at the end of the day, he gets the glory. David, King David, it, before he was uh, the lion killer, before he was the bear killer, before he was the Goliath killer, uh, he was a, the, the runt of the family. And it was while he was the runt of the family, God called him. I almost wonder if in that, because we, we see David throughout Scripture being that person who just loves God and he seeks after God. Uh, he is human, so he does fail, right? He kills people and he, ha- he commits adultery. So he is not without faults. But when we see him, I almost wonder if he could go about his life with a new courage and a new a renewed strength, knowing that God had, had chose him. So to him, everyone saw this little runt. But David sees chosen. So he's not, he's not cowering in fear.
God does not respect people's position. Doesn't care how rich or how poor you are, how what rank you are at work, how how established you are in your in your job. It, it just means absolutely nothing. He looks on the humble and the meek, and he smiles with pleasure. I love that. It's a wonder how anything gets done apart from God. He's not looking for rank. He's not looking for wealth. He's looking for true humility, like marrying. The third point I want us to look at is Mary's hope. We have her hosanna, her praise, her humility. Now we have her hope. Mary put her hope in the promises of God. She undoubtedly knew scripture. We see in in her response, she isn't just singing uh, uh, an emotional babble. She's singing promises fulfilled. She's singing Old Testament promises. She's singing the scriptures, the word of God to God as praise. Like, praise be to God. I'm, I'm unworthy. But she sees and she knows the scripture. She hears these stories through the family about a God who, who had promised a Savior, a Messiah. She knew that God was faithful. Notice what she said in verse 55. He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his seed forever. Mary knew the promises of God. She knew that they had, to be, had been passed down from generation to generation, that one would be born of the seed of Abraham who would save people from their sin. See, we have this weird relationship with sin as Gentiles, as Americans. Most of us don't believe our sins are, are that bad. Bad enough to, to require a saving. Because if we truly believed that our sins were that bad, we'd be, conf- we'd be confessing them nonstop. But for these people, they know the effects of sin. They have watched people be defiant to God, and God just strike them with lightning. Like, these people know. But praise God, we have that propitiation, that mediator, that Jesus Christ, that he no longer strikes us with lightning when we do stuff, right? That he gives us grace and mercy to come to our senses. She knows that one would be born of the seed of Abraham who would save people from their condemnation, from their death sentence. She realized that she had been chosen of all the women who had ever lived to be the mother of that child. Can you imagine the weight? C.S. Lewis has a, has, has a book, I highly encourage you, it's called The Weight of Glory. And it speaks to this idea of we don't understand the weight that is on our shoulders. Like as, as Christ's people, as, his, as, as, as Colossians speaks to it as the second humanity in Christ. Christ is the firstborn of all creation. That's why he had to die, so that he could bring about a new humanity through him. That, that reborn, that reconciled creation. I encourage you to read that book. It's very, very encouraging. That's what it means to be separate to be separated, that new creature, we are now new, a new thing under Christ. When, when, when we see this, the, the, the chosen, it's, it's so beautiful. She, she has this, this foresight to know that things are going to change for all eternity. Things are going to be different. The Messiah First coming of Christ brought the hope to the world. 
guess what? He's coming again. This, this is the kind of stuff that like gets me excited. I'm like, I can't even like keep my words together. I'm, just, I'm super excited because life is horrible, right? The world around us seems like it is so on fire. I want you to know this. Since I can't remember the, the full stat, but it's like mid-90s. From the mid-90s, violent crimes are down some 25%. You wouldn't know it by looking at the news. You wouldn't know it by looking at the world around you. But the numbers don't lie. Violent crime has, has been on the downward trend for the past 20 years plus. But that doesn't sell tickets. That doesn't sell ratings. That doesn't sell. So the world is sitting there pumping you full of all this darkness and the brokenness. There's like so much hopelessness in the world. But I want you to know God is supreme. He is sovereign. He holds everything in his hand. He's in control completely. And we have a hope. He brought Christ to redeem us, to, to take our condemnation and bear it on the cross for our sake, for his glory. Therefore, anything the world throws at us, what, is the, what does it say? That the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Death itself will not prevail against the work of Christ. You want to talk about the effectiveness of, uh, of salvation? Oh my goodness, I could speak hours just on that alone. And he didn't leave it there because guess what? He went to prepare that place for us, that perfection, that, that renewed shalom, that second earth, that second Jerusalem, the, the new heaven and the new earth, that restoration, that full reconciliation of creation. Guess what? Garden of Eden 2.0. It's going to be even more perfect because we're going to know. We're going to know the depths of God's love for us because of what he did for us. It's going to be beautiful. That, that hope, we want to talk about hope. I want to give you a little bit of hope this morning. His name is Jesus Christ. He's coming. He promised that one day he's going to return. One day he will come back and he will take his bride. He will take his church home to be his wife. He's going to grab her, hold her up, walk her through that door. I'm like, honey, look what I built for you. It's not going to be that personal, but I like to play that in my mind. I, I love I love getting to dote on my wife. I love buying her things. I love building her things. Um, she, she, she just asked me the other day, it's like, uh, is this the house she dreamed of, of living in? Because she's always wanted that, what, yellow cottage with a white picket fence. And guess what? It's not necessarily a cottage. We have a yellow ranch, but we got that white picket fence, right? She's like, this is my dream home. I'm, I'm just so afraid that you're, you don't get your dream. I'm like, Candlin, you are my dream. I have built I want to build. I will continue building this for you. And even more so on the nth degree is Christ building that for his bride. Because as much as I love my, my wife, Christ loves his church so much more. You want to talk about hope in a time where there is no hope. Jesus Christ. It's not just a bad word to say when you're not feeling okay, right? It is a beautiful thing. It is a person, Christ the Messiah, Yeshua Messiah. Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah. There is so much hope there. There's so much peace. There's so much beauty. There's so much to live for. There is so much to praise for. Mary knew it. She had that hope. That hope was being fulfilled, and she couldn't not talk about it. 
one day Jesus will come, take his bride to live with him forever and ever. It's almost like that fairy tale. The Prince of Peace come riding on a white horse, rescued his beloved. You guys ever see those old movies or those old things where you got that, the prince is coming in and he's, he's won the battle, he's won the victory and he comes riding in and, and the, the bride thinks that he's dead and that he was defeated in a battle and he comes bursting in through the door. It's just like this huge romantic scene happens. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? It's hilarious, and it's like that trope is always played out in those older movies. But it's, I can almost, I'm in anticipation of that. Christ will come to take us home. Folks, if, that, if you and I are in Christ, if we are in Christ, what does that mean? If we have hope in him, if we have believed in his salvation, in the work of the cross, and if we have repented of our sins, if we've confessed our sins, guess what? We are in that bride. We are that church. If you know him, you have hope for an eternity because he loves you. Now, here's the thing that's so funny. You don't have to get right to get right with God. That's the beauty of it. That you can't. God's not asking you to. He's just asking you to admit, one, that God has not had first place in your life, right? When we admit that God isn't taking precedent in our life, that we are sinners, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? If we confess, what is confessing? Not in your brain, it's in your mouth. It's saying words. God, I am a sinner. These are my sins. I am broken over my sin. If we confess, he's faithful. He will forgive us and cleanse us from that unrighteousness. The second thing is you have to believe that Jesus died for your sins. In Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Interesting how all these verses, if you what? Confess. They're not reciting a prayer. They're not doing this thing on their own, in their car, driving to work. They're not doing these things. They're confessing. Who are they confessing to? The people. Words have no meaning if there's nobody there to listen to them. They're confessing. They're with their mouth. They're saying these things, speaking them aloud. Confession isn't admitting to God that you've messed up because he already knows you have. Confessing is admitting that you have messed up to a holy God in front of your peers. And the third thing is to accept God's free gift of salvation. It's the most expensive free thing ever purchased. Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift, the gift of God. Nine, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. What does that mean? What does that look like? Is it because you wore a suit and tie to church? Herb, is it because you, 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 you don't have tattoos or you, you refrain from alcohol or you don't do this and you don't do that? You don't listen to these things. You don't watch these things. You don't do that. None of those things are bad things, right? Those are good things. I agree that it's good not to fill your life with all this bad stuff. But guess what? That isn't where salvation is found. 
It's not in your work. It's not what you do. It's not on your merit. It is only and for only by and through the works of Christ and him crucified. But here's the kicker. It's not in my notes. I'm going to kind of go off on a little, little trail. We'll, we'll take a little detour. Uh, what, is, what, is, what does Paul say in Galatians? He says, because uh, Christ has paid for your sin, shall you continue sinning? By no means. Uh, live in the Spirit because the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, we know this, right? Against such things there are no law. So a life that is convicted and fully repentant to the person of Christ, living in Christ's righteousness is not going to be doing all the bad stuff. Catch 22. Not because of works, but your works are a result of. Hmm. But we get jealous and we see people and so we want to emulate people and we want to do these things and we get things backwards and you do that for several hundred years, things kind of get a little construed and you have a lot of heretical teachings out there. But this isn't a history lesson in, in church history. The final thing is this. We accept the salvation. We believe in Christ. We admit that we are deserving of death and wrath. The last final thing we get is we receive Christ. We receive him. John 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is such a powerful, powerful, powerful passage. There is so much happening here in these two verses that we could, I could sit here and spend probably 20 years unpacking theological doctrinal statements just in these two verses and still not fully understand it all. What does it mean to receive Jesus? I accept him, right? I accept Christ. (laughs) But what does it mean to receive him? Believe in his name. Accept him for what he did, and the gift that comes from it. Receiving Christ isn't because you know you need him. Receiving Christ is because you know you can't live without him. That is the separation. I know that I shouldn't eat as poorly as I do. But I'm not dying right now because I eat bad. Right? The person who is currently dying because they eat poorly, they know they need to change their habits. Guess what? That's the same thing. They receive food differently. We are dying without Christ. We need to know that. For me to live as Christ. That is what it means to receive Jesus. You cannot draw another breath without him. I can accept him all I want, but I must receive him. Christ has come to give us hope and give you hope this morning. This, I, I, want, I want you to be so, yeah, just, just live in that hope. Hope is infectious. Excitement breeds excitement. Have you ever been around excited people? I mean, don't go to Ann Arbor right now. 
They've had the two best weeks that they've had in the last 20 years, okay? Excitement breeds excitement. Hope breeds hope. Negative thoughts breed negative thoughts. Positive thoughts breed positive thoughts, right? Happiness breeds happiness. Who do you like to hang out with? Do you like to hang out with mopey, depressed Eeyores all day? No, thank you. I want to be around the Tiggers. They're fun. Christ has come to give you hope. Be hope. Live in that hope. It's a beautiful thing. 